morning. I can't believe it's August already. <laughs> um, we're nearing the end of our summer series in the book of Revelation, and I'm excited to be sharing with you today from Revelation 21. Uh, this part of Revelation is often, it's a prompt for us to start thinking about what heaven might be like. So I, I don't know if you've had these conversations. Do you think ice cream will be bad for me in heaven? Or, you know, we wonder about this mansion that Jesus is going to prepare for us. How big is it going to be? And am I going to have a pool? And those kinds of things. Um, that can be fun to imagine and speculate. Um, but for some people, I think it's hard to do that. That was the case for me when I was younger. Um, I remember a conversation I had. It was March 20th, 1993. I'm aging myself here. Um, it was two months before my high school graduation and a month after I turned 18. And I was standing in a gravel parking lot of a church camp with my two best friends, and we were talking about heaven. And at that time, even though we were part of a church youth group and we'd gone to church camp, um, I don't think any of us would have considered ourselves to be Christians or followers of Jesus. Um, so we were talking about heaven, and I remember saying, I, I just don't get it. If heaven is living forever, why would I want to do that? Life kind of sucks. I don't want to do this forever. To me, um, the idea of just ceasing to exist sounded much more appealing than eternal life. Now, part of that was just my pessimistic personality. Um, I'm a four in the Enneagram. I don't know if any of you are familiar with that. Um, and my teen angstiness. Um, but that was also coming from a place of deep pain. Um, I had undiagnosed clinical depression, and I was struggling um, with some really deep brokenness in my family that had been going on for a long time. Um, so the reality was, at that time, I just couldn't conceive of a paradise, a heaven, that could be worth living in forever. I just couldn't conceive of it. Simply ceasing to exist seemed a lot more appealing to me. Well, later that night, I became a Christian. Um, the teacher for the youth retreat I was there for gave a talk called, Why You Should Tell Your Friends About Jesus. And her basic message was, because if you don't, they might go to hell. Now, at that point, I felt like hell sounds like something I really want to avoid. So if um, becoming a Christian means I can avoid hell, maybe I should consider that. Um, I still didn't have a compelling vision of heaven, but I didn't want to go to hell. So um, I decided to follow Jesus. <laughs> um, fast forward a few months later. I was with a new youth group. Uh, we were driving back from Michigan to Ohio. We'd been in the car for several hours. We were tired of playing cards, and one of the other youth group members said, why don't we study the Bible? And we're like, yeah, what's the most weird, bizarre part of the Bible we could think of to, to study? So of course, we ended up in Revelation. Um, I was still trying to figure this whole following Jesus thing out, and I'm sure I'd read, I'd read some parts of the Bible, I'd heard some of the stories, but this was my first experience just opening up the scripture with my peers and just talking about it and trying to figure out what was going on there. And there was no pastor there to lead us, there was no one to answer our questions. It was just a bunch of teenagers opening the Bible and saying, what does this mean? And I loved it. That's when I fell in love with scripture. I was hungry for more of the word. And I also noticed um, the study Bible I bought a few weeks earlier, which I have right here still, nicely duct taped. Um, there were these columns in the middle of the pages that had these tiny little scripture references. And as we were looking through the book of Revelation, I noticed that those references were coming from 
pretty much every other book in the Bible, Genesis through Jude, and even in Revelation. I was amazed at this. I was completely fascinated that this strange letter at the end of the Bible wasn't just some standalone story about these weird end times battles. Um, this book was deeply connected to every other part of scripture. So here I am now, 26 years later, and I get to preach out of Revelation. <laughs> so in a few minutes, you may have noticed we haven't read the scripture yet. I'm going to um, invite Mark and Sabrina up. Actually, if you want to come up and just have a seat until I'm ready to have you read. Um, but before I have them read today, I want to tell you that we're not going to be thinking today about what this passage has to teach us about what heaven's going to be like someday in some future far-off time. This last book of the Bible and these chapters are not here simply to tell us the end of the story. This passage is helping us to recognize what it looks like when heaven breaks into this world here and now. These last chapters give us critical and necessary insight into how God's people should be living here and now. And I believe that if we ignore this here and now aspect of this vision of heaven that we see in Revelation 21, then we're in danger of getting sucked into Babylon and bowing down to Babylon. It's easy for many of us, especially those of us who are already pretty comfortable here in this world, to look at a passage like Revelation 21 and place it in a category of fun to think about for the future but not really relevant to my life right now. And that makes sense to me. Um, when we're comfortable in the here and now, it's human nature to want to stay comfortable in the here and now. And Babylon offers us the illusion of comfort in the here and now. Babylon, as we've been seeing throughout our summer, um, Babylon is about power. It's about might makes right. In Babylon, the strong devour the weak, and wealth, and material wealth and possessions are worshipped. In Babylon, success is measured by how much we have, how much money, how much power, how much esteem. In Babylon, the goal of life is to make a name for myself. And in Babylon, if making a name for myself, and if my having more money and more power and more esteem means somebody else is going to have less, well... That's, it. That's just the way life is. It's not fair. It's easy for those of us who are fairly comfortable here and now to gravitate toward Babylon. But if we're being pulled toward Babylon, we're being pulled away from the kingdom of God. If we're, being, if we, if we're being pulled toward Babylon, we'll be deceived into thinking and feeling like things in this world are basically okay, my life, my choices and values seem just fine. They seem to be in line with God's choices and values. So there's really no need for me to consider how Revelation 21 might show me something about living differently here and now. Because Revelation is just about some future far off heaven when I die. Right now, I'm, I'm fine. I'm great. I can look forward to this heaven. On the other hand, if we recognize and want to resist the pull of Babylon, we really must reevaluate everything. Everything in our lives and everything we see when we look, truly look, out into the world. We must face the reality that the world as it is right now is not good. It's not okay. So we're going to take a look at that. Um, I want us to consider, as Mark 
and Sabrina Reed in a few more minutes, we're going to get there. Um, consider what we learn from Revelation 21 that might help us resist Babylon and draw us deeper into the kingdom of God. How is Revelation inviting us to live differently in the here and now? Now, in, in all of scripture, we see what God wants for his creation. We see what God intended. And we also see that God's intent has been completely messed up by our sin and brokenness. But throughout scripture, God continues to give us these glimpses of what he really, truly wants for us. In this section of Revelation, we see a vision of what God intends for us and what God has always intended for us. In this section of Revelation, we see um, glimpses of the entire story of scripture. All the earlier parts that show us God's beautiful plan for this world, we see echoes of that in this passage. There really isn't much that's totally new here. This is just, Revelation 21 is just a reiteration of what God has always intended for us ever since he knelt down in the dirt to form us with his hands. So as we listen to um, Revelation 21, I want you to maybe close your eyes and picture this, and I want you to pay attention to the, um, the images uh, from earlier parts of scripture. I want you to pay attention to what this passage might tell us about how we should live here and now. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Now the dwelling of God is with men, and he will live with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. He who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. Then he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. He said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To him who is thirsty, I will give to drink without cost from the spring of the water of life. He who overcomes will inherit all this, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But the cowardly, the unbelieving, the vile, the murderers, the sexually immoral, those who practice magic arts, the idolaters, and all liars, their place will be in the fiery lake of burning sulfur. This is the second death. One of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues came and said to me, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the lamb. And he carried me away in the spirit to a mountain great and high and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. It shone with the glory of God, and its brilliance was like that of a very precious jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. It had a great high wall with 12 gates and with 12 angels at the gates. On the gates were written the names of the 12 tribes of Israel. There were three gates on the east, three on the north, three on the south, and three on the west. The wall of the city had 12 foundations, and on them were the names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. 
The angel who talked with me had a measuring rod of gold to measure the city, its gates and its walls. The city was laid out like a square, as long as it was wide. He measured the city with the rod and found it to be 12,000 stadia in length, and as wide and as long and high as it is long. He measured its wall, and it was cubits thick by man's measurement, which the angel was using. The wall was made of jasper and the city of pure gold, as pure as glass. The foundations of the city walls were decorated with every kind of precious stone. The first foundation was jasper, the second sapphire, the third chalcedony, the fourth emerald, the fifth sardonyx, the sixth carnelian, the seventh chrysolite, the eighth beryl, the ninth topaz, the tenth chrysoprase, the eleventh jacinth, and the twelfth amethyst. The 12 gates were 12 pearls, and each made of a single pearl. The great street of the city was of pure gold, like transparent glass. I did not see a temple in the city, because the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. The city does not need the sun or the moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and the Lamb is its lamp. The nations will walk by its light, and the kings of the earth will bring their splendor into it. On no day will its gates ever be shut, for there will be no night there. The glory and honor of the nations will be brought into it. Nothing impure will ever enter it, nor will anyone who does what is shameful or deceitful, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, as clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb down the middle of the great street of the city, on each side of the river stood the tree of life, bearing 12 crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month, and the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be any curse. The throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the city, and his servants will serve him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads. There will be no more night. They will not need the light of a lamp or the light of the sun, for the Lord God will give them light, and they will reign forever and ever. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So I want to um, have you take just like 30 seconds and to somebody, with someone next to you, share some of the things that you noticed from this passage. So a little audience participation this morning. Was there anything you noticed that reminded you of earlier parts of scripture? Anything that you see about what God intends for us here and now? So take about 30 seconds. I'm a teacher, so I, oh, go ahead. Oh. <laughs> yes, okay. <laughs> what else did you see? Yes, 12, a lot. 12 apostles, 12 tribes. Yeah. What else? <laughs> okay. <laughs> it's going to be bright there. Anything else? Yes. All the nations are coming into this city.
yeah, a single pearl, yeah. It's, it's beyond lavish. It's just so abundant and beautiful. Um, and it's Isaiah, in Isaiah 55, um, God talks about making your walls with jewels, and um, that's an image that takes us back to something God had promised his people. There is so much in here that we can unpack, so much. Um, this is a rich and beautiful and dense picture of what God desires for his people. And on Friday afternoon as I was preparing for this, um, my intention was to pick out a handful of truths from this passage, and then I was going to unpack some specific ways we could apply that um, to live out those truths here and now. And by Friday evening, I'd narrowed down um, those truths to six. Um, but I knew that was probably too much. Six points in a sermon is probably too much. Um, so I consolidated. I pared down a little more. I had it narrowed down yesterday afternoon to three. Three points is a good sermon. Um, that's doable. So then around 9 o'clock last night, um, I was trying to wrap things up. I had my three points, trying to bring it all to, to a good close. And I saw the news about El Paso. So I don't know if any of you, all of you heard, um, a man went into a Walmart in El Paso with an AK-47 and killed 20 people, including a four-month-old baby. Um, 26 others, at least, as of last night, were in the hospital, including a nine-year-old and a two-year-old. Um, and just before he went in and did this, he posted a paper that he'd written online about how immigrants were taking over the country and um, he needed to do something. And so he was going to be taking these weapons, and this is what he was going to be doing. So what I've, what I've shared with you this morning is what I had written up until last night at 9 o'clock when I heard that news. But when I heard that, um, I felt like I'd had the wind knocked out of me. And all of my thoughts about how to wrap this up just kind of went away. And I hate to admit it, but that isn't usually how I react to news of this kind of a mass um, shooting like this. It seems like we're becoming desensitized to it. It happens so often. There had been another mass shooting earlier in the week. Um, yes, they, like three or four, it's, it's crazy. Um, but this time, when I got this news, this particular story, it was so connected to the message I was already wanting to share from Revelation 21 that um, I felt like I had to back up a little bit and rethink how I was going to say what I felt needs to be said. Um, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to sort of step out and pause for a minute and give you a little bit of warning. Um, this next few minutes, um, this middle section is what I wrote last night after I'd gotten this news, and I was still processing what I wanted to say in light of what happened, another senseless racist tragedy. Um, and so what I'm going to say might be a little raw, um, some of what I'm going to say you might really disagree with or you might find offensive. Um, some of what I'm going to say um, might, you might think it's out of line and inappropriate for someone to say it from a pulpit, especially a pulpit where I'm not the pastor. And I have talked with Chris about this, so he's kind of aware of what I'm going to say. Um, I want to say that if, if you disagree and if you feel like it's inappropriate and out of line, you might be right. I'm fallible. Um, I might be getting in over my head, but I will ask you to bear with me. Um, know that I prayed earnestly about what to say this morning, and I had asked others to pray for me. Um, and that doesn't necessarily mean that what I'm going to say is from God, but I'm, I've been seeking God about how to give this message. Um, I'm not saying any of this lightly. 
And I also humbly ask before um, I keep going that if you feel strongly in a negative way about what I say, um, please don't take it out on Oak Church. Um, come back on a day if you're visiting here. Come back on a day when Pastor Chris is preaching. He's a lot more chill than I am, and so don't don't you let this be your um, whole experience of Oak Church. Um, and also, I, if whether you're a visitor or not, if if what I'm going to say is hard for you or you don't understand or you feel like it's um, just way out of line please, please come and talk to me. I would love to have a conversation with you. I'd love to help, have you help me see if I might be wrong in some way, and I'd also love to help you understand if, if it's not clear why I am saying what I'm about to say. Okay. So that may, may be way overdoing it with the caveats, but I just wanted to get that out of the way. All right. So since I heard this news last night, I've been feeling pretty angry. And this isn't that uncommon for me because in general, I'm a person who cares deeply about injustice. Um, I think I spend a large percentage of my life trying to figure out how to manage the anger that I feel towards injustice in the world. And last night, I, I already, as I was putting this together, I had some of that anger about injustice stirring in me already, and I wanted to somehow communicate that. Um, but af as I was trying to wrap it up, I felt like I wanted to funnel that anger into this message. Um, often, when I have that anger, as I'm going to preach, I, I, my, my preaching voice is more of a prophetic voice than a pastoral voice. So there's always this anger of it at injustice bubbling up. And I usually try to dampen it a little bit and make it a little bit more palatable, maybe. But after hearing about El Paso, to be honest, I kind of felt like to hell with palatable. I'm angry. And even though I could be wrong, I think there is something right and good and true about this anger. And I want to be clear, I'm not angry, angry at any of you. I'm not angry at Oak Church. I'm not angry at any of you who might be visiting today or any of you who disagree with me. I am not angry at you. Honestly, I don't know exactly where to put my anger. I don't know exactly who I am angry at. I am angry that it was possible for a man to buy a weapon of war and take it into a Walmart and open fire and I am angry at the ideology he had, that anti-immigrant racist ideology that somehow made him feel he was entitled to kill people just because he thought they were on the wrong side of a man-made border. I'm angry at that man. I am also angry when I look at the United States of America and there are so many people, including our president, who share this man's values. I am angry that when I look at our country, I see more of Babylon than I do the kingdom of God. I see our leaders, both political and religious, valuing power over sacrifice and believing the lie that might makes right. Seems like wherever I look, the strong are devouring the weak and wealth is worshiped. In America, success is measured by how much we have, how much money, how much power, how much esteem. It seems that the goal of America today, especially as modeled by our president, is to make a name for ourselves. And just like in Babylon, here in America, if making a name for ourselves, if our having more money and more power and more esteem means somebody else has to have less, so be it. There's only so much to go around. That makes me angry. 
But what makes me even angrier, God help me, <laughs> is that so much of what I see when I look at the U.S. that's so much out in the open was secured by and is supported and upheld by the white evangelical church. Now, I don't want to take up too much time trying to define what the white evangelical church is because it's complicated and there's a history and there's a lot of people wrestling with that identity. And I want to acknowledge I'm one of those people. I am part of the white evangelical church. I just left 20 years of working with a white evangelical ministry. So I'm not trying to point the finger entirely outside of myself or my community. But friends, 81% of white evangelicals voted for a man who is a sexually immoral, racist liar to be president of the United States. And yes, he is a racist. It does not matter what Franklin Graham says. You cannot tell four American women of color, three of whom who were born here, all of whom are American citizens, to go back to where they came from and fix those places before they come here and tell us how to fix our country. You can't say that and not be racist. That is literally one of the legal definitions of racial discrimination, to tell somebody to go back where you came from. I don't want to mince words. I want to be able to tell the truth in the church, and I don't feel like I see enough of that. According to a poll just recently, 73% of white evangelical Christians continue to approve of Trump's presidency. 68% of white evangelical Protestants, according to a Pew Research poll, believe that the US does not have a responsibility to accept refugees. Now, I know there are a lot of complexities when it comes to immigration policy. There is a lot. It's you know, overwhelming. but. Most of these same white evangelicals also insist that the United States is a Christian nation built on Christian values. What does it communicate to the watching world when Christians claim that we are a Christian nation and we have no responsibility to welcome people, even our brothers and sisters in Christ, into our country who are fleeing violence and persecution? What does that say to the world, to people who don't know Jesus? So yes, I am angry this morning, and I'm a little scared to be up here expressing that anger because anger isn't something that I've seen often expressed or welcomed in church on Sunday morning, especially in white churches. I don't know if you remember seeing clips of Jeremiah Wright when Obama was being elected president and the anger that he showed. Black churches know how to do this prophetic anger thing, but white churches, we're not comfortable with that. And this is a predominantly white church, so I'm a little bit scared. <laughs> And like I said, I'm not completely sure if all of this anger that I feel um, toward the El Paso shooter or toward our political leaders or, our white, or at white evangelicals, I don't know if it's totally right and good. I'm reminded by Paul in his letter to the church at Ephesus that our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. So I'm angry, but I'm going to do my best to direct that anger not toward the flesh and blood people that are involved in these kinds of things, but I will work hard to direct that anger toward the enemy. I'm going to work hard to direct that anger toward Babylon. And, you know, I think that's actually biblical. As I was thinking of this last night, I, I noticed something. 
Um, we haven't gone through each chapter in the book of Revelation. We, we have just not time to do every one, but um, we skipped over Revelation 18. And I'd like to read a little bit of it now because it actually does a pretty good job of expressing some of what I'm feeling right now. So from Revelation 18, 1, um, after this, I saw another angel coming down from heaven, having great authority, and the earth was made bright with his splendor. He called out with a mighty voice, fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. It has become a dwelling place of demons, a haunt of every foul spirit, a haunt of every foul bird, a haunt of every foul and hateful beast. For all the nations have drunk of the wine of the wrath of her fornication. And the kings of the earth have committed fornication with her. And the merchants of the earth have grown rich from the power of her luxury. Then I heard another voice from heaven saying, Come out of her, my people, so that you do not take part in her sins, and so that you do not share in her plagues, for her sins are heaped as high as heaven, and God has remembered her iniquities. Render to her as she herself has rendered, and repay her double for her deeds. Mix a double draft for her in the cup she mixed. As she glorified herself and lived luxuriously, so give her a like measure of torment and grief. Since in her heart she says, I rule as queen, I am no widow, and I will, I will see, never see grief. Therefore, her plagues will come in a single day. Pestilence and mourning and famine. And she will be burned with fire, for the Lord is mighty who judges her. Friends, there's a place for anger <laughs> in the church. Um, I debated about whether I should bring my anger um, here this morning, um, but I decided to do it because I think anger is warranted when we look out at the world and see the horrible evil that is happening every day in every place that we look. <laughs> Many of us here, including myself, um, we can and we do choose to insulate ourselves from that evil to some extent. We want to keep people and places that are suffering because of evil at arm's length. And I get that. I do that too. But if we, God's representatives on earth, can't come close and see the pain and suffering that exists in the here and now and feel angry about it, then I think there's something really, really wrong. Especially when we look at a passage like Revelation and 21 and see what God wants for our world. After Babylon falls, we are going to see a new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God. And God will dwell with us, just as he's always wanted to. In this city, there will truly be no more death or mourning or crying or pain. But that pain and mourning that we experience here and now, that's not just going to be forgotten right away. There are still tears falling in this new Jerusalem. But God comes close. And with God's own hands, he wipes the tears from our face. And he will say to us, and to all those who suffer from evil 
and brokenness in the here and now. I will not let evil or violence or greed ever hurt you again. All of those things that bring death and mourning and crying and pain, they will not be allowed in this city. And this city where God dwells with us is going to be a place of welcome and healing for all nations. There are thick walls around this city that protect it, but there are also three gates on each side reaching out to every corner of the world, and on no day will those gates ever be shut. Those gates are open so that people from every nation, tribe, people, and language can stream into the city, bringing with us our splendor and glory and honor and all of the beautiful things about our culture and our language and our people. We will bring those into the city in order to serve God together. And in this city, we find the tree of life whose leaves are for the healing of the nations, for our healing. And I want to I confess that when I um, pict have pictured this whole scene in my mind, most, not all, but most of my church experience has been in predominantly white spaces. And so when I picture all of the nations streaming into this city, what I've pictured is a bunch of white people in the city and a bunch of people from other places coming into it. <laughs> that is not the way it's going to be. We, as America, are one of those nations. We, as white people, are part of this. There's going to be more people who don't look like us there than people who look like us, most likely. <laughs> so this is what God intends. This is what the far-off-in-the-future heaven is going to look like. But what does that have to do with here and now? Well, one thing is it could be incentive for us to tell others about Jesus. Because after all, this holy city does sound way better than a way better alternative um, than hell. <laughs> um, it even seems a way better alternative than simply ceasing to exist. We want all people that we know and love to be there. And often our message about um, what Jesus has done for us comes down to, if you believe in Jesus, your sins are forgiven and you can go to heaven when you die someday. But if that's all that we take from this, if we only think of this passage as being about the future, and if we only focus on telling people about this future heaven that's going to be way better than here and way better than going to hell, then friends, something is not right. Because essentially what we're telling people is the here and now doesn't really matter because someday after you die, you can go to heaven where things are going to be great. So just hold out a little longer. This is all going to be over. Don't worry too much about the pain and suffering you're experiencing now because someday when you die, you can go to heaven. Can you imagine saying that to the mother of the four-month-old baby who was killed yesterday in El Paso because she was on the wrong side of a man-made border? That reasoning that... Um, it doesn't really matter what happens here because in the future you'll live forever with Jesus. Um, 200 years ago, that's what allowed most slaveholders in the American South to call themselves Christians. What's happening here doesn't matter. At least I've done these people a service by telling them how to get into heaven after they die. And we can't just point the finger at people way back then who we now clearly see were in the wrong. That same reasoning allows us to ignore pain and suffering in the here and now because we've convinced ourselves that the here and now doesn't matter. 
To say that this passage about the new Jerusalem is really just about the future heaven, that allows us to stay comfortable here and now in Babylon. While I was studying this passage, um, preparing to speak this morning, the imagery of the bride leapt out at me. And I've seen it before, I knew it was there, but something about it just jumped out at me again. And I made a connection that I I just appreciated more fully. Um, Twice in chapter 21, and then once again at the end of chapter 22, the holy city is referred to as the bride. The bride and the wife of the lamb. And who is the bride, the wife of the lamb? Who is the bride of Christ? Brothers and sisters, we are the church. Those of us gathered here today to worship Jesus together, and also people all over the city and throughout North Carolina, throughout the whole U.S., and millions of people from all nations who gather every week in the name of Jesus to worship the Lamb who was slain. The holy city is a place where we will dwell with God for eternity. And the holy city is a people, us, we who live in the here and now. The new Jerusalem is people from every tribe, nation, and language who, in spite of geographical distance, in spite of language barriers or cultural differences, in spite of physical walls or man-made boundaries or political beliefs or anything else that might separate us, We are all one in Christ, one body, one family, one bride. And here's the connection I think we need to make. I used to be a math teacher, so I love sneaking math in whenever I can. Um, So I don't know if you remember the transitive property. (laughs) If A equals B and B equals C, then A equals C. So if the holy city is the bride of Christ, and the bride of Christ is the church, then the church is the place where people will experience the compassion of God wiping tears from their eyes. The church is the place where death and mourning and crying and pain will not be tolerated. The church is the place where we will see people from all nations celebrated the place where all the beauty and splendor of different countries and cultures and people groups and customs and rituals will be welcomed as followers of Jesus from every nation come together to bring honor and glory to the Lamb. The churches where people from all nations will find healing, where they will be able to drink without cost from the spring of the water of life. Somehow, in some reality that I don't understand, this vision in Revelation 21 is what the church is. But in the already but not yet world that we live in here and now, it can be really, really hard to see that. Last week, Pastor Chris um, preached from Revelation 20, and he said um, that what we see there is that evil is not alive and well. And in this liminal, already not yet time, I think it's possible for that to both be true and not true at the same time. Here's where my math breaks down. (laughs) Friends, I recognize that the United States of America is not the church. But when I look at the church in the US, 
I don't see us looking much like the holy city of Revelation 21. There are absolutely pockets and places where that reality is alive and well, but if I'm honest, especially in the last few years, I see way more of the not yet than I do of the already. I think that we need to be asking ourselves um, as individuals, as families, as a church, um, local church, greater church, we need to be looking and reevaluating everything and asking, do we look like the holy city of Revelation 21 in the here and now? When I decided to become a Christian that night, um, the message had been about telling your friends about Jesus so they wouldn't go to hell. But that message alone isn't what made me decide to follow Jesus. It was the fact that after I heard that message, I was so scared that I was going to go to hell that I went to the woman who had been teaching, who was a friend, and she sat with me in the camp kitchen and cried with me and listened to me about what was going on in my life and assured me that God had me in the palm of his hand. And that closeness was a, a little glimmer of the promise of Revelation 21. Not the message, you're going to hell if you don't know Jesus, but sitting with me and crying with me. Now, that reduced message of Jesus died for your sins so you can go to heaven, God in his mercy has used that message to bring people to him. But we could be doing so much better. And I would love to see us ask ourselves, how can we live this out? We know there is an ultimate reality where love wins, where evil is being judged, and where Babylon will fall. But we, the bride of the Lamb, must look right in the face of the evil that is still trying really hard. And I believe that we must get angry. We must see death and mourning and crying and pain of our brothers and sisters here in this church, in our city, in our country, and all over the world and we must respond with compassion and hospitality and healing. We must hold on to and hold out the hope that Jesus will come again. And as it says in my favorite children's Bible, all sad things will come untrue. The spirit and the bride say, come. And let him who hears say, come. Whoever is thirsty, let him come, and whoever wishes, let him take the free gift of the water of life.